Hello everyone, welcome back to the Cloisterbell podcast. Today we are talking about Doctor Who Ghostlight. The TARDIS Cloisterbell. Imminent disaster. The Cloisterbell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no. So, yes, hello, everyone. Happy Monday. Um, new day of the week that we put the podcast out on. I'm Rob, and I'm here with Liam. Hi, Rob. How are you, everyone? Hi. You all right? Uh, yes, not too bad. Can't complain. Well, I could, but what would be the point? <laughs> How about you? <laughs> Good, thanks. Uh, what have you been up to today? Work. <laughs> that's pretty much it um, it was a, a bit of a late one and then uh, I'm starting to take some delight in re-watching Frasier um, which I haven't seen in a while and uh, that's been it's it's because uh, I, I always loved that sitcom uh, really rather good um, and that's just I've only just started so I've just uh, I finished watching the third episode today and uh, it just it cheers me up it made me feel good and have a laugh it was uh, it was quite nice how about you um, that's cool. It reminds me of um, going to my grandma's on Friday nights when it used to be on. Oh, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I'm good, thanks. Uh, oh, b- ordered a new te- new um, TV today. Ah, right. Okay. Uh, uh, when does it uh, When does it arrive? Um, I'm getting it on Saturday, so uh, not long to wait. A few days. <laughs> yeah. Is it uh, Is it Is it a bigger television? It's only bigger by an inch or two, mm-hmm. but um, my old one, the backlight had gone, so everything was just blue, um, so I was in need of one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, looking forward to that coming. In the middle of watching WandaVision on Disney+, Plus, I also watched um, Shazam, the DC movie, which oh, surprised right. me, I quite liked yeah, um, I don't know too much about it, but I have heard uh, other people who have seen it, and uh, it took them by surprise, saying that um, it was surprisingly quite good. So I might, yeah, <laughs> I, might, I think uh, I might even rewatch it one day. <laughs> yeah, well, it comes with your recommendation as well, so that's really good. So uh, I'll probably check that out at some point. Uh, one thing that uh, I've been doing is because even though during uh, the whole lockdown thing, I know a lot of people have been um, getting on top of watching movies and so on. And funnily enough, that's not something that I've done. I mean, obviously, I've watched movies, but not not constantly. Um, but I'm wanting to to get into that. So I've, uh, I rewatched recently All the President's Men, which is a fantastic movie. If no one's uh, seen that, it's got uh, Robin Redford, Robert Redford in, and Dustin Hoffman, and it's about uh, Woodward and Bernstein how they investigated what became known as the Watergate scandal. It's a really good movie. And then I watched again at Robert Redford, Three Days of the Condor. Which is a, a, a nineteen. It's fictional, but it's another nineteen seventies thriller, conspiracy th- theory type thing, um, and that was fantastic. And I love the ending. Um, it's very ominous. Uh, that's great. And then uh, on more lighthearted, I uh, most recently I've watched the nineteen eighty nine Batman film. Oh, cool! Um, which is your favourite out of the Michael Keaton films? Oh, it's tricky. Batman has uh, a huge place in my heart because that's the very 
I mean, even though it was Certificate 15 when it came out on VHS all those many years ago, it's the first film I ever truly fell in love with. I don't know how, I mean, I was incredibly young, probably about, about, about maybe three or four. And that's the very first film that I remember just truly falling in love with and it stuck with me all these years. So I love, I generally love that film. And I, not only do I have a huge amount of affection for it, and um, but I generally think it still holds up and I think it's a very good film. But probably, I think Batman Returns is the better film. Mm. It does improve on a lot of things. Yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, the production values of Batman are absolutely phenomenal, but there's just one or two model shots that look like model shots. Um, you know, I mean, if you... I mean, I'm really taking it to nitpicky level. Um, whereas I think the production values of Batman Returns is better, but I also... Th- but obviously, it's not just the production values. It's got to be everything. It's got to be the story as well. I think the uh, story is really interesting... And I love how it's written. Because one of the things that I really like about the Michael Keaton uh, films is it has that, I think, that wonderful balance between the um, the darkness of of Gotham, that world, uh, and the plots and the villains and everything, as well, and, and the humour. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think um, the whole world Tim Burton makes... Well, actually, the, uh, the whole world Danny Elfman builds around the music as well, that whole... Um, that the whole feeling the movie gives you with the music, the soundtrack's brilliant. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because uh, I haven't got that many soundtracks, relatively speaking, um, but I've definitely got the soundtracks for Batman and Batman Returns. Daniel Daniel Elfman's uh, music score for those films is brilliant, and that Batman theme. I mean, it's still it's still really strong, stirring stuff. I love that theme. I just think it's fantastic. Yeah, I've, in fact, I've still got the novelization for Batman the movie. Oh, right. And I like that because I, as a kid, I used to have it in the, in the in the middle. It's got a a few photo pages as well. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I'm going to go through a, a bit of a, a Batman binge. Um, well, I say that I'm not going to watch them one after the other. Though I'll be watching other stuff, but I definitely want to watch Batman Returns. Is definitely going to be on the cards very shoot here very soon. Um, yeah, and then you got Batman Bat- and Robin. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will be watching it, but uh, I'll, Batman Forever, I think people forget that when that film came out about actually how how successful that film was, uh, I think people forget that, and I think the reason being is because of Batman and Robin. Batman Forever is not too bad, but Batman and Robin, I mean, I'm not that familiar with Batman and Robin. I think I've maybe only seen it once or twice. Um, See, I liked it, and I, I, was, I liked Batman Forever, but... I got the impression when it came out that they were trying to make it obviously more commercially successful mm-hmm. um, and possibly making it more accessible to and entertaining to younger viewers but you know we were kids when that came out and I could tell the difference in tone between the first two and Batman Forever mm-hmm. and I, I thought why have they made this shift because <laughs> I was a child and I appreciated the tone of the first two. So I thought it wasn't a necessary step. No, I agree with that. But still a good movie, though. No, no, yeah, it's well, it's, it's, totally. it's still good. It's still decent, but I mean, uh, I think uh, uh, the the quality between, as you say, the previous two movies and that one, it is, it is markedly different. And I think because I mean, Bat- Batman was a was a huge, huge success, and I think they were hoping for them to repeat that same level of box office success with Batman Returns. And they didn't get that. That it wasn't a box office flop, but because it wasn't as big, 
as the first film um, and therefore not seen as commercial and perhaps a lot darker they said well we'll go down a bit more of a commercial route but they've gone for I think they went from one extreme to the other but you know I mean it's okay Batman and Robin's the one that uh, killed the franchise for many many years and I think people um, blame Batman and Robin for giving Batman nipples but apparently he did have them in Batman Forever so um, <laughs> George Clooney gets a lot of stick for that but blame Val Kilmer yeah no, it was it was funny because uh, I forgot what it was. I was watching. I mean, this was many many years ago. Uh, it was a television program, and they were talking about uh, Batman films. I think this was just as the, I think maybe Batman Begins had just come out, and it was obviously seen as a huge success. And then they were talking about what had gone on before, and they said, you know, it was Val Kilmer who was the bad Batman. And I thought that was interesting because it's you know everyone goes on about it's actually Batman and Robin but George Clooney played Batman in that but I think George Clooney's recognised as a very good actor so it would be very odd to say you know George George Clooney was crap but anyway so just a quick mention um, this Saturday over at cloisterbellpodcast.com we have the 7th Doctor Word Search going live so if you want a couple hours to kill go ahead and play that <laughs> So on with the topic of today, Ghostlight, uh, the Doctor brings Ace to Gabriel Chase, an old house that she once burnt down in her hometown of Perryvale. However, trying to get Ace to accept her guilt is not the real reason the Doctor came here. A mysterious and highly mental, mentally unstable being slays below them. Um, so we've got some story facts. This was the, the second serial of season 26 but I believe it was the last one ever shot um, yeah. broadcast between the 4th and 18th of October 89 on BBC One over three 25 minute episodes a few extra releases the soundtrack was released by Silver Screen in 93 and July of 93 Titan Books published the scripts for the serial as part of the Doctor Who scripts line of books it was first released in the UK on VHS in May of 94, but it wouldn't be until 2004 when it was re-released on DVD, Region 2. And the story was released, of course, on Blu-ray as part of the Season 26 box set. Mm-hmm. Um, that was out back end of January. That was last, that was 2020. Yes, it was. Blimey. Um, back in January 2020, when everyone was still able to have a life. Um, happy, back in the old days. world. Yes, back in the old world. Yeah. It, uh, I think uh, I think a lot of people agree that season 26 is, is one of the best. And as you said, um, this was the last story recorded in season 26, although the, it wasn't the last to be broadcast, but it was the last to be made. And, the, and so it has the, the distinction of being the very last classic Doctor Who story to have been made. Um, season 26 is, is really rather strong. I mean, I think when you've got a season where you go, well, I mean, obviously this will depend on personal taste, but when you can say that the weakest story is Battlefield, I think you know you're in pretty good company because that's actually quite a decent story. It's actually quite good. But, you know, when you've got... Um, in stories like The Curse of Fenric and Ghostlight and Survival as, as the rest of that season. Um, 
it's like yeah it's it's really really strong and so even though this story marks the end of 26 years of television at least it went out with a bang in terms of the quality and not a whimper because um mm -hmm. Obviously, because you picked this, Rob, as your favourite Sylvester McCoy story. I think it's a, uh, it's a story that, you know, I haven't picked it, uh, but it's still a story that I absolutely love, and I think we're going to be uh, singing its praises. Yes. Um, I do love Remembrance of the Daleks. Um, it's possibly one of my more go-to um, revisited stories. Yeah. But this one, I love, the, I love where McCoy took the character to somehow. Of all the faults in this story... Um, McCoy's not one of them. His performance is perfect. I love his I love his outfit. Um, the whole the whole tone of the episode mm -hmm. is quite good. Um, of course. Um, some of the performances questionable at times, but um, mm. McCoy's pretty much spawn here. Oh, okay, okay, right. This mm. is going to be interesting because um. This is one of the stories where I think that, that the casting, without exception, is, is superb. And I I don't think there is a, uh, a dodgy performance. I've got a sneaking suspicion of what you're referring to. But, uh, okay, it's going to be interesting uh, when we get to that. So a quick overview of the cast for this serial. The Doctor, of course, played by Sylvester McCoy. Ace, Sophie Aldred. Josiah, Ian Hogg. Miss Pritchard, Sylvia Sims, uh, RFC, uh, Redvers Van Cooper, Michael Cochran, Control, Sharon Deuce, Gwendolyn, Catherine Schlesinger, Reverend Ernest Matthews, John Nettleton, Nimrod, Carl Forgoyne, Miss Gross, Brenda Kemper, Inspector McKenzie, Frank Windsor, Light, John Hallam. Production crew for this episode, writer Mark Platt, producer JNT, director Alan Warren. So, part one opens, it sets a very particular tone for the episode, and the housemaids bring dinner to, um, well, and a copy of the Times, to someone captive in the basement. This is actually the, uh, the kind of spaceship setting in the basement, but it's kind of hidden behind curtains at this stage, so it tries not to give away too much at this stage so the doctor and ace arrive in the nursery slash laboratory and the rocking horse eye glows doesn't it and um because of course they're being they're being watched and um, similar thing happens with the ostrich eye later on does the doctor notice the rocking horse eye he kind of glances over to it doesn't he he does in the in the the way that the um episode was transmitted um it's it comes across more as the fact that it's just something that we the audience are noticing but um, with the extended versions as uh, as the scenes were originally in the script and a shot before everything was edited down uh, funny enough in that very scene where the doctor does actually look uh, he's clearly looking at it it's, it's it's a big moment he's clearly noticed it before he then continues his conversation with ace of course, the Doctor wants to investigate what's actually happening here because he's 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 came here because of Ace, mm -hmm. and he's not going to let on that he suspects there's more going on here. Yeah, it's it's interesting from from the moment that the, that they soon arrive because as soon as the TARDIS lands, the, what the Doctor you know 
he says that he's having us take uh, initiative tests. So, um, you know, she's the first one at the TARDIS and then is reporting back to the Doctor to see, you know, well, have you worked out where we are? You know, he's basically sort of being... Um, it's as if he's trying, you know, if he Sherlock Holmes trying to teach Doctor Watson his uh, his, his his abilities of uh, discerning things. So, the, the, so so from the very off uh, in this episode, it's clear that the Doctor is trying to teach Ace something. Yeah, I think other Doctors have done this kind of thing before, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Doesn't someone do this with Rose at some point? Oh, that I'm thinking of the girl in the fireplace. Where? Oh no, I'm thinking of Adam in the long game. Where she sends she sends Rose out to kind of um, lead the way and investigate. Um, is there any other scenarios where anyone's been in this situation like Ace before? Do you think? To a certain extent, I mean, I, th- I think you could say that mm. may, it was a sort of relationship that the Fourth Doctor and Leela had. You know, because uh, mm. certainly at the beginning of the Talons of Wang Chiang, the Doctor uh, makes a point that he's trying to teach Leela. Um, mm-hmm. So there, you know, with certain companions, there's obviously uh, not all, but with um, there is a, a obviously a, t- a teaching element to it. Um, but it, it comes to dominate more relationships than than others. And at this mm-hmm. point in in Doctor Who, uh, and with Doctor and Ace, it's it's clearly a, a it's clearly a big clearly a big deal. And of course, he's he's trying to get her to face her fears. Mm-hmm. Um, which comes hand in hand with um, getting her to show some more initiative and grow as a person. Um, so Ace reveals to us that uh, she's been to a haunted house before. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the Doctor knows this, but uh, he's, he still doesn't let on that that's the reason they're here. Typically all the maids kind of leave before dark, well before 6pm, which is quite early actually. It depends um, what uh, time of the year it is, but yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, after dark, it's the summer. It's six o'clock. What? <laughs> it's still broad daylight <laughs> So this went out. Of, this went on the air in October. I wonder what the evenings were like then. It's October. That's dark, is it? I think. Is that so, just yeah, on yeah, the threshold so. of changing? Mm. Mm. The Reverend arrives. Yeah, through his interminable journey from Oxford. The Doctor and Ace find the snuff box um, with the initials RFC. Mm-hmm. And this is the scene with the ostrich eye. Um, and the doctor has his little radiation detector. And this snuff box is emitting radiation. This is when Fen Cooper arrives. And he's also emitting the same kind of radiation. So there's something going on with this this character in, um, in particular. Mm-hmm. And he's also clearly not himself. And you point out that Ace is barely dressed. Yes, I, 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 I love this scene. Um, it's. Uh, I remember even uh, when I first saw this story, probably when I was about seven or something. I can't quite remember, but yeah, I've I've always liked this particular scene because um, it reflects the the period that they're in. But it also makes an excuse later on for why Ace would um, get changed, um, which becomes a sort of visual representation of what the story is about. But I don't want to preempt anything, but. Um, but yeah, this is a great, great scene. Um, you know, it's like uh, I've seen. I'm sure that you've seen some things more grisly than Ace's ankle. You can't see my ankle. Well, your boots then. I mean, just I love how the whole scene's written and how uh, 
Sophie Aldrin, uh, Sylvester McCoy play it. It's uh, you know they've the pitched it perfectly. It's it's great. Shortly after this, we meet Nimrod. Um, for a twenty-five minute episode, we really get to we will get introduced to quite a lot of characters. Nimrod initially being a bizarre one because it's not it's not explained to the viewer that he's a Neanderthal initially. <laughs> No, no, but I mean, it's it's obvious in the sort of the, the makeup, and I, I can't remember when, but I'm sure it is commented at some point in um, in episode one, where Ace says to the Doctor, he's an Neanderthal, isn't he? And then the Doctor says, yes, the finest example I've seen this side of the Stone Age. Um, mm. And there's something, I mean, I just like the imagination of, of someone who can produce something like that. You have a Neanderthal servant in a Victorian home. It, it It's a wonderful batty idea there's something very douglas uh douglas adams about it um i could see mm. douglas adams uh you know uh, maybe have it seems to come from that sort of that sort of level of imagination um but it just it it works you just sort of accept it i mean obviously there's a question mark there why on earth have you got a neanderthal in, 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 in as a servant during the victorian era but yeah isn't there there is a Douglas Adams reference in this when the doctor says um who is it that said you should never invite your ancestors, ancestors to dinner. dinner yeah 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 in the final episode yeah yeah um uh, you know which is great but then Douglas Adams was a script editor for Doctor Who and Douglas Adams is getting referenced in Doctor Who <laughs> did your brain hurt yet I think the uh, well Nimrod's makeup um whether you think it's effective or not it is seamless well, I think it's uh, it's effective, but I think it's that wonderful blend of a good a good uh, good makeup, but also the, the actor's performance because everything about you know the, um, his stature and the way that he you know the actor has turned his arms you know sort of round so the uh, the back of his hands yeah. are outwards, just everything it just sort of it's it's that wonderful you know just everyone's coming together really well with uh, with makeup and the actor. Um, it's uh um, yeah. he's a re- he's a really solid guy like he's, he's really good. he's got very high morals and he's not he's a very innocent kind of person with um with all his honor i think he's kind of lacking the badness of humanity of course he's uh he's not human in the way we consider human so maybe that's uh maybe that's the difference maybe the neanderthals were were generally better people <laughs> Uh, you're very similar lacks to the bad lacks the bad humanity well I mean yeah uh, humanity contains bad things but that doesn't mean that every single human is a bad person so uh, <laughs> could, I suppose you could say that about Neanderthals I mean I don't want to be anti-species but you know um, but, you, but then you've got a Neanderthal who is living as a servant in a Victorian mansion Basically, he's like the butler character, and um, he, you know, he's incredibly polite and intelligent. And you could actually go, well, that's evolution. The fact that you got Neanderthal at that stage, which obviously is a, is a you know, evolution is a big part of this story. No, no, and and if you got someone as decent as uh, as as Nimrod, uh, you know, this whole thing about survival of the fittest, you could go, you could argue, well, Nimrod's the personification of you know. Uh, just because you're the strongest doesn't mean you have to be a dick. Back in the room with um, the Doctor and Ace uh, with Fen Cooper, um, I like the scene where they're at gunpoint and then he sees his own reflection after after he's been talking to them. Mm-hmm. And it's revealed to us that uh, he is RFC. 
yeah, he's uh, he's swiftly escorted away. Mm-hmm. I, I I like that. Uh, I like that uh, entire scene. There's a there's a nice subtle reference to the talents of Wang Chiang actually, when the Doctor says, "Is that a Chinese fowling piece by any chance?" Um, ah, right. So th- okay. That's a refer- a nice little nod. Yeah, but it's it's one of those great lines that like, you don't have to be aware of that story. You know, th- it, you know, th- it works. But if you're aware of the story, you go, oh, it's a nice little nod to, to that. Um, but I, I like the I like that whole scene in terms of again how it's written and how it's performed. But also a big part of it is Marquez's sound uh, is his music. Um, this is one of my all time favorite uh, soundtracks to a Doctor Who story. In fact, uh, when because you uh, you made a point of saying that the soundtrack was released, I think you said ninety three or something like that. They re-released it, mm-hmm. I think, in 2013, uh, right about the time of the 50th anniversary, I think, so that would make sense. Yes, I remember um, that. Yeah. And I, I bought that, and I, I, I love the soundtrack. Um, and this is one of the scenes where I think it has one of the... the uh, it really elevates the scene, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but that, that moment when, uh, when he realises that uh, the person that he's actually looking for is himself by watching himself, seeing yeah, his you reflection... You like a ghost. <laughs> Yeah, there's um, there's something quite darkly comic about that. I mean, you you kind of feel sorry for him because, you know, he's clearly had his mind, uh, broken by something he can't, quite handle, which is actually what the doctor says. Mm-hmm. So again, there's, as you said before, within a very short space of time, we're being introduced to all these characters, but already we're being, uh, uh we've got all these questions that we want answering so it's like well what happens to the house after six o'clock um wh- why are the why are the maids um hiding in an alcove uh, and then go to work when it uh, when it strikes six o'clock why is this reverend here why do we have an neanderthal here who who's this man who's who who is a hunter who was looking for someone who turns out to be himself what is it that he's seen that is um that has completely fractured his mind um, there's a lot, a lot of questions yeah. presented here. Yeah, yeah, there is. It's uh, there's not all of them answered so clearly. Yeah, and, uh, and and what's that? You know, and what's what's hiding behind the door in the basement? <laughs> you know, there's a, you know, but it's it's. Uh, because one of the things that I've always thought about this period of Doctor Who, when Andrew Cartmel was was script editor, because um, he was really trying to push the boundaries and be. Uh, innovative and providing modern engaging stories which he really worked uh, which he was able to do but one of the problems was he was curtailed by this old-fashioned format of producing you know uh 25 minute uh episodes which i mean even at this point when you had because i think it was 1988 when the bbc did their adaptation of the line the witch in the wardrobe you know which was this big you know it was a, it was a clearly a children aimed drama but their episodes were 45 minutes long so modern children drama um was producing episodes of 45 minutes but doctor who's still doing 25 minutes um and one of the things that you know especially when you come across a story like the curse of fenric if you watch the original transmitted version it, it, it's clearly lacking um you know it's it's moving at too fast a pace where it, it, you know moments that should be taken at a much more leisurely pace or a bit more information uh provided the audience and things like that is, is is forced to be edited out if you watch the extended version which is only 12 minutes extra than what was transmitted it really services the story a heck of a lot curse of fenric on the other hand i think they i think 
with Mark Platt and Andrew Cartmel, you know, with Mark Platt having written the episode, uh, the episodes, I think are really skillful because even though you know we've got an awful lot of, you know, a lot of characters, and as I said within this first episode, an awful lot of questions that need um, answering. It doesn't feel rushed, and it goes back into the tone and the direction and everything like that. It just it it just works. I don't know whether you agree or not. I do, yeah. It does. It does fit the format really well. Oh, Nimrod meets the Doctor shortly after um, Fen Cooper's taken away, and then he escorts the Doctor into the into the um, the study. Is it drawing room? Uh, drawing room, I think. The drawing room, yeah. Um, of course, the Reverend mistakes the Doctor for Josiah, mm-hmm. um, and I love this scene where the Doctor gives Nimrod the fang. <laughs> the cave bear. <laughs> the fang of a cave bear. You have wisdom and great power. Yes, thank you, Nimrod. Uh, even the doctor's a bit embarrassed by this reaction. <laughs> which is which is great. And then, you know, just sending him off to make a cup of tea. Again, it goes into that thing. Yeah. It's, just, um, it's just something really wonderful. Wonderfully Douglas Adams so bizarre. about the whole thing. Yeah, it's... No. It's just out of place and unexpected. But somehow it works. Uh, it all seems to tie in with the the tone and the feel of mm. it. It's, uh, yeah, it's great. He get he gets um, Gwendolyn to go and dress Ace more appropriately. Mm-hmm. We later on find out that they've got they've got dressed in kind of men's clothes. <laughs> yeah, um, obviously it would have been incredibly daring at the time. Um, but again, again, I mean, at least she's covered up more. But of course, this is this is very progressive um, of the times, you know, and it, it it fits in with the theme. Would you say is that the point? Yeah, yeah. Well, because because uh, I said that really, what the story is about is change and evolution, and so what we have is Ace's character evolve uh, in terms of how she conquers her fears uh, during the course of the story and they're conquered by the end of it. But also we have this sort of, it's sort of visually represented in a slightly different way with the the garments that she wears. So she, she, uh, although it all ties up. So, uh, you know, she arrives in modern uh, 1980s clothes, which is obviously uh, unbefitting the Victorian period in which they have landed. Um, but then you know she's having, to, and then she's forced to conquer her fears. By this time, she's fully immersed into um, into what is taking place. Um, but then she's changed her clothes into something which is not so much of a rapid prog- progression for her. But you know, uh, because she's wearing you know uh, men's clothes, you know, which is from the nineteen eighties, that wouldn't have been unusual. But now she's wearing Victorian era type clothes, and then by the end of the story, she's then wearing a Victorian period dress. You know, it's just uh, mm. uh, because I think um, I mean it's it's a natural part of uh, you know of of a story that's written well. You have character progression. Um, maybe within a, a story like Doctor Who, maybe you can say, well, that doesn't necessarily apply to the Doctor, but in terms of everybody else within the story, you know, it uh, you know you have good pro- you have good uh, character progression, and that's just the signs of a good writer that's what good drama is yeah you know you you see that 
but just this nice, nice little touch that I decided to uh, represent that as well through through a visual means as well. So Josiah walks into the drone room and he's blinded by the light. So as he screams light, the lights do dim. So um, did that predict um, like smart bulbs? <laughs> no. I mean, I'm pleased he didn't clap. I think that would have uh, lowered the tone of the story a little bit. In the basement, it's revealed to be a bit more technological now because Nimrod goes down and kind of raises the curtain up. <laughs> and this is where he's knocked out. Is he knocked out by one of Josiah's previous husks or is it control at this point? It is control, isn't it? I think so. Funny enough, for, for many, many years when I've watched it, I always, I always assumed that it was one of the husks. But actually watching it on this occasion, mm. it's like, oh, I, I think I've completely... Been- yeah. For some reason, on this occasion, it seemed completely obvious that it's control that does it. Yes, I think I think you're right. Um, it's very, it's not very clear to me. Well, when I first ever seen this, what the husks actually are or how they function, um, because they're not a husk. They're still, they're still kind of alive, but not in the same capacity. Yeah, I think uh, from what I can gather, just, um, Ma- yeah. uh, Mark Platt. Um, didn't actually write them in originally and John Nathan Turner who is the producer said look this is Doctor Who we need some monsters can you put some monsters in and I think that's when um, they then incorporated the husks It, do- I mean I think they're a great design and they do add um, you know a nice little bit of yeah. you know th- a threat and atmosphere to the story but then it does muddy it a little bit but I think it, it, it make you know because it, you know uh, we learn that Josiah is this being who has evolved into what is deemed at the time to be the highest sentient being, which, by the end of the story, is a Victorian gentleman. So he's gone through this process, and so he's he's gone through these different developments and shredded um, his previous versions of himself, which are these husks, which actually makes sense in the confines of the story. What I think confuses things a little bit is the fact that they're still sort of semi-sentient, but... I suppose it still works. So yes, um, Nimrod's been knocked out and now Josiah has them all sat down to dinner. So we'll have the Reverend ranting on about how ridiculous Darwinism is. So Ace quite enjoys this moment. But then Josiah gets a call so he's summoned away and it's Control on the phone. Um, It becomes apparent that she's escaped now. Um, yeah, but what's interesting is, is his reaction, which is, he's, you know, because he says, it's learned to speak. So that takes him by surprise. Just prior to that, I, I've just got to highlight one of my favourite, uh, again, one of my favourite moments is that um, when they're sitting around the dining table and Ace goes, uh, fancy a takeaway. Anyone fa- <laughs> anyone fancy a curry? And then because of the period they're in, Doctor goes, I know a good uh, restaurant near the Kyber Pass. Um, I just thought I'd mention that. I, I, it's a nice, another uh, humorous moment. Um, one of my yeah, favourites. Good reference. <laughs> yeah. But now that you mentioned that, um, he's surprised Control can speak. Mm-hmm. Was it Control that they were bringing copies of the Times to? Uh, yes, it yeah. was. Yeah. So. No, but I mean, you, you can still you can still read without speaking. As, oh yes, I suppose. <laughs> there is a difference. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Um, so Ace is pretty angry at this point because she's now figured out that 
the place they're in is in fact Gabriel Chase and she feels betrayed um, and she goes on to Doctor how she wants to face her fears on her own terms mm. but the Doctor has put her in this situation without informing her about this yeah do you think the Doctor had a good approach to doing this it obviously did help Ace overcome it I mean, he's coming from the right motives, but I mean, the way that he's done it is is, is a bit questionable because basically Ace has, has had this conversation. Oh, by the way, Doctor, just um, uh, I remember this time when I went in this house and it freaked me out and it's one of the worst memories I've ever had. I just thought I'd mention it. And the Doctor goes, hmm, what I'll do is I'll secretly take her there um, and, you know, to, to make her feel better. But, I, you know, I'll, I'll do it in this really cagey way. Um, it's actually quite a, it's quite a creepy thing to do. And when she says, oh, I, I've been to one haunted house, never again. And he, he doesn't even blink. He doesn't even look like he has any regret. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But that, but, but I mean, but this whole scene when, when Ace is, you know, is basically, uh, you know, uh, telling the doctor, look, I, I want to face my fear on my own terms. I love that scene. I think it's, it's not only arguably the, I mean, you could argue it's the best scene in the story. It's one of the best moments in Doctor Who. Um, again it goes back to how it's written how it's performed how it's directed because I, I like uh, the the way that it's directed in the camera shots as well you know that that whole thing of you know the, you know when the doctor's ex, you know explaining the things that he hates um, you know burnt toast I sympathize I'm not a fan of burnt toast um, and then um, just just lines like uh, I can't stand what was it? Uh, bus stations full of lost luggage and lost souls. Um, there's just something really provocative mm. about that. That sort of line, seemingly very simple, but it, it it all again it's adding to the the tone and the feel of the story, um, as well as um, as well as helping the individual scene as well. Um, I just think it's great, and uh, and again, you know, we have these moments when when. When she's just, you know, uh, and then Ace has learned something about the horror that she experienced when she visited the house a hundred years after the events of the story, which is that the thing that freaked her out was alien. Um, so she, you know, she's learned something, and she's she's just about to reveal something further to the Doctor, um, but there's but there's then interrupted. Yeah, but I thought that was interesting with the Doctor. And it helps her come to this realization yep. that there is an alien presence here, uh, and then she is willing to kind of embrace mm-hmm. this and find out what's really going yeah, on. Yeah, because because funny enough, actually, what she does do following that conversation is obviously that the doctors brought her there up to a certain point, but then she's actually made that decision to go and face her fears. She, you know, she's made. You know, she has made that decision because then, I mean, we're leading up into the cliffhanger of the first episode, but then you know she. She seems to instinctively know to go into the basement. So, are we to ascertain that? She's yeah, she's she's repeating before. something that she would do a hundred years after you know, um, in that you know what she would do in nineteen eighty three. The Reverend um, confronts Josiah, and he's mm-hmm. he's chloroformed. <laughs> that, that's when we get the uh, that's the way to the zoo sequence, kind of. Spotted in here. Yeah, which uh, which is great, and I found out that it was it was purely serendipitous um, because they'd written this scene where 
Gwendolyn will be singing something on the piano. So they, they did some, well, let's see if we can find um, some Victorian song that she can sing. And they just happened to find that it's a genuine Victorian song, which was released at the time, satirising uh, Darwinism. So they found that uh, a genuine song purely by accident, but it was a song of the period, and it fits in with the you know the, the theme of the story. So that was quite good, and um, yeah, <laughs> I like the song as well. Another thing that kind of fits in with um, with Gwendolyn's character, this conditioning that's on her, her identity kind of breaks through a bit because of she references uh, her mother later on. She's singing here and. We have to remember that what they materialized in a laboratory mm. slash nursery, and Josiah has been in control of this house for a good few years, mm-hmm. at least two years. So Gwendolyn would have been quite a young girl when this happened. So yeah, the song might re- reflect a lot of her her upbringing and childhood. And yeah, no, no, I, uh, I know exactly what you're trying to get at because we. we... We established something uh, in in episode three towards uh, the story, which um, it's it's one of those things where we we haven't seen it, but it's you know we're told it. Josiah is really a really nasty piece of work uh, because of you know because there's this idea that you know he he he's evolved into Victorian gentleman and then his his next eye is to assassinate Queen Victoria in somehow of the hope of controlling the British Empire and that will make him the most powerful being on earth so you just think oh he's he's a basic villain um but actually in order to get to that point he has done some truly awful things um you know the the doctor refers to him in episode three as the uh, the cuckoo that invaded the nest because I think it's you know uh Gwendolyn and Mrs. Pritchard, we don't know this at this point of the story, we learn this in episode three, that they're actually uh, mother and daughter. And uh, they've been brainwashed by Josiah. And actually Gwendolyn murdered her father. She did this after she was brainwashed, is that, is that what's implied? Yes, I think so. I mean, the, the Doctor's not very forgiving of that, um, because he sa- he, he says... Um, in episode three, I would give because um, the the metaphor for for killing people is sending them to Java. Um, and in episode three, speaking of Gwendolyn, he says, "I would forgive her for sending um, her fa- uh, people on trips to Java, including her father." Um, Cooper informs the doctor, but she was brainwashed. But the doctor doesn't seem to mind; isn't bothered by that. He says, "But I would forgive her if she didn't enjoy it so much." Mm. Uh, the doctor doesn't seem to be that bothered that she was brainwashed. Um, it was the fact that, well, no. she still she she still enjoyed and relished that. She didn't need to. When she does finally mm. embrace with her mother, um, there's a moment of possibly resentment in her mother's eyes. Um, when she mentions the father that you sent him to yes, Java, because that that whole scene—I mean, it's um, it's incredibly chilling for for what they're talking about. Um, but yeah, because she she talks about you know our, we were so happy once. Do you remember that time when you know we were the father and I, th- I think she mentions uh, dogs were running and everything was so happy, and then um, and then you sent him to Java, 
and that seemed to, you know, uh, yeah, th uh, that marked a change, and obviously a bad one. Mm. Yeah. So as the episode comes to a close, we have Josiah and the Doctor talking, and um, this is the scene where he offers the Doctor five thousand pounds to mm -hmm. get rid of control, which is of course an insane amount of money. Um, he also says to the doctor my roots are in this house and I'm as human as you are and ironically all true you know the doctor yeah well the, the doctor is sort of like yeah, yeah the doctor looks at his roots are in the house yes um, it, again, it, it's great it's subtle because his, his roots are in this house <laughs> you know it's 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 lines which have a double meaning because you could you know obviously what he's trying hmm. trying to say is uh, you know i was born in this house but really that you know my roots are in this house the spaceship in which i come from is in the basement of the house and as you say i'm as human as you are i'm, I'm alien as well um yeah it's again it's yeah. uh, another sign of uh, i just think really really good writing um and i love um the doctor's reaction to being being offered um was it did, is it five thousand pounds Five thousand pounds? Yeah, he's like no. It's like Which, how much? Uh, I think <laughs> he's really treat. Well, I'm, I say I think as if I work this out. I checked it on the inflation, the Bank of England inflation calculator, and uh, according to that, uh, that amount of money would be worth six hundred and twenty-one thousand seven hundred and twenty pound, uh, twenty pounds and forty-three pence in today's money. Just in case you were interested. <laughs> A lot of money. Wow. <laughs> Where's Josiah getting this money? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. Where is he getting this money from? Yeah. And then we have the cliffhanger of part one. Ace enters the lower chambers. Two creatures confront her from behind the curtain, mm -hmm. which are the two husks. Um, out of this, out of the cliffhangers in this story, um, well, there's only two cliffhangers, but what do you think of this one in particular? bit of a cliche monster coming towards her it is um but there's 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 nothing wrong with that uh and i think it goes into the um you know I like, as i said i like the look of of the husks themselves um you've got this thing no they're exactly they're not overused and you've got an interest again it's it's well directed good use of light it's atmospheric you've even got a You've even got the use of sound, you know, to, to build up the horror. You know, the sound of um, the sound of birds screeching, uh, and then you've got uh, and then you've yeah. got control uh, calling Ace Rat King. So you've got this creepy voice on top of everything. So it's it's basically you know it's all the horror cliches thrown in, but but it's handled well. It's handled with real skill, um, and yeah, maybe it's. Uh, I suppose we can can look at it later. Maybe it is arguably the uh, the, the the weakest cliffhanger. I'm not, I'm not, uh, but it still works. It's still good. So the opening of part two, um, Nimrod comes to Ace's rescue. Um, surprisingly, so well, like I said, Nimrod, Nimrod's a top mm. guy, so he, he's come to save her. But um, he's soon defensive of this uh, this containment unit where mm -hmm. where light is contained. Or this screen, rather. So, up in the uh, what would we, what would we, what would we call the the hallway? The oh, the entrance hall. The entrance hall. Yeah, it's called hall. Um, the alarm's going off, and the 
the doctor um, holds Josiah at gunpoint, yeah, and he's yeah. holding him with his radiation detector at this point, isn't he? Yeah. So I don't know if this fools Josiah at this stage because he kind of knows what it is in the basement. Yeah, but I mean, he had his uh, he had his back to the doctor when the doctor pulled it out, so maybe at that point he doesn't know, and. Uh, and obviously everyone else is reacting like he's he's being held really at gunpoint. So <laughs> the first time you'll be able to see it see it properly is when the doctor hands it over to Ace. Yes, that's right. Ace is a bit of a giveaway. So the doctor goes down to the basement with Josiah. Um, yes, Ace, like like you said, nearly gives away the fact that the doctor's not really holding the gun. Thank you, Ace. And the Doctor fixes fixes the, le- the <laughs> leak in the light chamber. And then he identifies the mm-hmm. two husk creatures as previous versions of Josiah. Um, I was wondering here, to what extent does the Doctor understand what's really going on? Because he has a lot of assumptions, but he doesn't always let on because he's holding back for Ace, possibly. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point uh, in, in in the series, I mean, uh, Sylvester McCoy, as you said before, when we're talking about performances, he really, um, you know, this is his third year in the show, and he's really nailed it in terms of his performance. But also at the same time, they've really nailed how they've written the character. And he, he is a, a Doctor who is fully knowing and fully in charge as much as possible. You know, he is a doctor who you know fine well knows a lot more than anybody else in the room, and he, you know, he he's very quick. And, you know, and uh, and we've start, you know, and later on when it's established that you know he's made deals with uh, with control. I mean, we're not privy to those scenes and when they took place, but it's covered by the fact that we're following Ace for, for you know for, for most of it, and she's slept for for most That's of right, the day. Yes. Um, so so that covers it up. Uh, but it doesn't feel like we're lacking in anything uh, in terms of information. You know, it. Uh, you believe that's what this doctor would do. You know, and it's all. You know, everything's revealed in, mm-hmm. in due course. But yeah, you're right. He he does he does seem to to know an awful an awful mm-hmm. lot. Uh, and then they they run away from control into the lift shaft. So this this is our first mm-hmm. uh, glimpse at control and. Um, she's kind of shrouded in um, the robes, and she's ha- she has a kind of a face piece on where she has a half half formed face. I think was that right, or was that or was that intentionally a mask, or was that part of her her face? Uh, oh, uh, I'm not sure. Maybe I should. I, I've never been aware of a mask. I, uh, I just thought it was you know her her, her face is shrouded right. in shadow. Um, maybe yeah, I, yeah, I presume like half her face wasn't like, not even formed yet. Good idea, actually. I mean. Um, that might be the case. I've never picked up on that. Maybe it's one of those things that have gone, how the hell have you not noticed that, Liam? It's bloody glaringly obvious. We have a memorable scene. The Reverend is... Um, a Reverend. I know you said the Reverend Bernard Matthews, that's the chicken, Ernst Matthews. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's turned into an ape. Yeah, pl- uh, played brilliantly by J- uh, John Nettleton, uh, who I know for, for his appearances in um, huh. Yes Minister, mainly, as, as well as other things, but uh, he, he, he was in that... And, uh, a few episodes he's really rather good yeah and i like his performance and yeah it's it, i mean it's really creepy because 
so, so here he is as this character, um, you know, mocking the idea of evolution, and then Josiah is just absolutely laughing his <laughs> laughing his head off. I mean, it's a really creepy scene. Yeah, it's the way it's cut as well. It's like the way the shots are cut. That's the sleight of hand, and we're already presented with him eating the banana before that. So it's like the sudden realization of what's happening as the viewer. <laughs> Yeah, and because uh, even the way that John Nettleton decides to peel the banana, if 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 even look at the way that he's d- even the way he does that, he's doing you know it's just sort of like the human being an ape, but then he you know even the way that he, even the way he eats it, and then and then you 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 cut to J- Josiah laughing his head off, and you know his skin's peeling, you know he doesn't look he just, he's not in the best of health by the looks of him, poor chap, no. poor chap, they the guy's an ass, yeah. um, <laughs> sod him. Um, you wouldn't take a banana from him. Oh no, <laughs> good God, no! And then he ends up. He ends up. It's the op- uh, what's the opposite of evolution? De-evolution. Devolution. <laughs> Devolution. Yeah, he 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 devolves <laughs> into an ape, and it's 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 really creepy. And then it's even more creepy because the, the next time that we see him, he he's sort of like mounted and stuffed inside a cabinet as if he's in a museum. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's. It's it, oh, it's horrible. And um, the doctor awakens Inspector McKenzie. Inspector, yes, Inspector McKenzie, with a few few clicks of his fingers, wakes him up after two years, and man, he's really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> which I, a few which I like, which which makes sense. I mean, you know, but yeah, he's um, but it, it and adds a nice comic touch to the character as well that he's just constantly stuffing his face. Yeah. And I love how the uh, the housekeeper is called Mrs. Gross. Uh, I don't know why that appeals. It just seems very <laughs> Dickensian. It's sort of it's a sort of name that Charles Dickens would have come up with for, for one of his characters. And just the way that Sylvester McCoy emphasizes the name. Why don't you get Mrs. Gross? You know, to make you more food. I just you know I like that that whole you know that, that whole relationship. And to, again, in terms of how it's written and how uh, how the actors uh, play it, you know and. Th- the doctor, you know, uh, Inspector McKenzie's talking to the doctor and accidentally um, spits bits of sandwich on him, oh, and then yes. and then wipes his jacket and you know just stuff like that. Yeah, it's just nice little touches. I love his whole nature. I say, especially when he comes in later, um, commenting about Nimrod, <laughs> like oh, gypsy blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just that you know the, the sort of I don't know like the racism of the period, but you know he, it's funny because. You kind of like the character because he's just this decent bumbling. So I mean, he was there to um, to investigate the the disappearance of um, Sir Sir Pritchard. No, it's not Sir Pritchard because that's a surname. I, I've forgotten what is uh, uh, Lady Pritchard's husband, which because um, he he was there to investigate his his disappearance. Um, uh, and obviously Josiah decided to to put him away. Um, actually, the, this reminds me. Um, the, when I was uh, when I was watch when I was rewatching the story because I rewatched the the transmitted version, but I also w- watched the extended work print that's on the Blu-ray. And uh, there's a bit when uh, sorry to jump ahead, but this is this is in the third episode. So when uh, when light has been released and, and and all the rest of it, and this is. There's there's a bit where uh, Lady Pritchard uh, is given is uh, Josiah gives instructions to to everyone. Um, so Gwendolyn is to deal with Ace, 
uh, and Lady Pritchard is told to deal with uh, the interfering inspector. And there's a bit when uh, the inspector goes to talk to Mrs. Pritchard, um, but she's very stern and it kind of frightens him off. So he runs upstairs and then she hands one of the, the maids a machete and tells the uh, and tells the uh, tells the maid to go and deal with him. Wow. Yeah, and it was just wow. That's bloody brutal. hell. <laughs> that's yeah, that's really brutal. Um, I mean, obviously, the Inspector Mackenzie meets with the uh, with you know the end that is as transmitted. But it's the fact that we have this scene where Mrs. Pritchard's said slaughter the policeman with this machete. machete. Um, that took me by surprise because I had no idea that you know that was that was written. Um, but yeah, they'd even recorded it. I suppose it's not surprising that that scene was edited, but, uh, you know, quite strong stuff. There is that scene where Ace wakes up, obviously, later in the day, um, and she talks a little bit about... um, She watches inquires about Perryvale Village a little bit. Yeah, again, uh, just a nice little reference to to Dragonfire. So when Ace's character is introduced and it's the final episode, and Ace, you know, it's sort of leading up to Ace gonna be in the TARDIS and, and Mel's departing. The doctor's talking about how, how Paravel is uh, is a beautiful idyllic place with, you know, um like blacksmiths and all the rest of it and then and then a, and then Mel says she's from the twentieth century and the doctor's like, oh And so when 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 Ace is in this scene talking about is is there a blacksmith on the village green? It's a reference to that. Ah okay. And it's a bit I didn't get that. and it's a, it's a yeah and it <laughs> I mean, you have to be really into Doctor Who to spot these. Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm not at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but so it's a reference to that. But then I like how uh, how it's basically that even though the Doctor was in Dragonfire talking about what Perivale was like in the Victorian era and how it was beautiful and idyllic and you had blacksmiths and all the rest of it, when Ace mentions that in this story, the housekeeper's just like, "No, there's no nothing oh, like that here." All right, okay. <laughs> Doctor was talking crap. There's one bit I do love before we get to the closing part of part two, when Nimrod's talking about his experiences in the past, and um, when the inspector's like, "Oh, tricky things, mammoths." <laughs> it's one of my favourite <laughs> lines. Yeah, that is good. And the closing scene, um, everyone's in the hallway, well, in the, in the entrance hall. And control emerges, and she brings light with her. Um, Josiah's like, "No, don't let him out." Gets it, gets shocked. And when light emerges, there's such a bright light that comes out the elevator, um, at the lift. And the episode cuts there, um, which is quite an effective cliffhanger. No, no, I think I think it's very effective because everything's been building up to the fact that we've got this thing called light. Uh, Nimrod worship it. Josiah's scared of it. Uh, Control's sort of like in battle with it. Everything's been building up, and it, it and um, even the Doctor doing whatever it is that he's doing. Even he he's saying that this is a huge risk because you know things have run away with themselves. He says at one point uh, with what he's promised Control, um, and he he also says leading up to this moment that he's lit the blue touch paper and found that there's nowhere to retire to. 
so it's this is sort of like make or break so everything's been building up to this moment and it's 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 realized very well josiah is completely freaked out and if the main villain of the story is freaked out then bloody hell this is this you know this is really serious stuff um you know and everyone well the, the vast majority of people in the story are in this this one place waiting for this this moment and as you said josiah gets uh gets uh, electrocuted um you know we've got this strange creature called control uh telling everyone it's too late and then this blinding light it's it's because it, it, it's like right uh this the story's going to change now at this point you know at this point um mm. you know there's no going back here and so it's a big moment of drama and it's a fantastic cliffhanger so episode three opens and light emerges from the lift and Josiah and the maids kind of retreat upstairs for the rest of the day. So the doctor wants to have a few words with light. And I like that scene where the doctor is kind of ranting and raving and light's gone, but then emerges in the room. He does kill one of the maids on the stairway, doesn't he? Even though the gun would have been ineffective anyway. So it's clearly a, a danger to life here with kind of no empathy towards people. Yeah, and and so in that sense, um, the way that his character is introduced is is very um, consistent to what quickly emerges. Because again, it's I mean it's it's really amazing that this is only a three episode story. So now we're in the we're now we're in the final episode. Um, but again, I, I don't think it, it feels rushed. So light is established in this episode, you know, for, for the first time. I mean, everything's been you know everything's been talked about him, and he's you know it's it's all been building up to it. Um, but as soon as he's introduced, as you say, he really his first act is to kill somebody, uh, and that's just the beginning of of what he later decides to do. Mm, yeah, to a slightly bigger extent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just slightly. Yeah. yeah. There's this great scene in uh, the hallway with not the entrance hall later on. Uh, the Doctor and Ace. Uh, the Doctor presents Ace with a TARDIS key, and she says, "No, that would be the easy way out." So mm. then there's this great scene where the doctor walks off and Ace turns and it takes she's frozen on the spot and she has flashback to the um, the time when she actually did burn down Gabriel Chase. Does the doctor kind of hypnotize her here or something? Because he just kind of swings the TARDIS key in front of her face. I was wondering if he triggered this kind of... Um, Revelation, or oh, this kind of flashback. Did you have that interpretation? No. No, no, no. Uh, I, I, no. I mean, it's 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 an interesting idea, but I've I've never had that. I think because the way that I always thought was because everything now that light has emerged and things are starting to really hot up in the house and you know things are coming alive that were previously dead and all the rest of it. So things are you know being in the house would have you know produced very heightened emotions and then on top of everything else that Ace is having to go through. Mm -hmm. I just thought that this was Ace going through uh, through a natural reaction. Um, you know, her, her fears have really started to you know come to the come to the fore at this point because, as has already been established, back in 1983, uh, Back to the Future, um, you know, she was going through an you know she had a very close friend who gone through a, a brutal racist attack and her uh, where the house was firebombed. Um, Ace was in a bad state because of that she then escapes to the ruins of gabriel chase only to discover that you know it's it's the worst place for her to escape to because uh 
there's something really weird and disturbing about the house on top of everything else. So as we later emerge, as is later uh, revealed in this episode, um, she burnt the house down. So she has all these heightened emotions and experiences and sense of guilt. And now that the doctor, you know, basically forced her to confront that by taking her to the the very reason why the house instilled those feelings into her and everything's starting to, to, to heat up. Um, I th- you know, this is basically, I think, Ace going through, I wouldn't say a mental collapse, but certainly on the verge of it and, and forced to forced to finally really, de- you know, really be forced to, to deal with it and comprehend everything that that's going on. And then, uh, but she doesn't really have an awful lot of time to um, to consider that because then her life's in danger. Mm. It's really effective that scene, um, and I love the way we do kind of see the sirens off to the side, the, the yes. red and blue lights. Yeah, it's really effective. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, like you said, she's in a she's instantly in a, a dangerous position because she's taken away and she's locked up in a room. Um, out with Gwendolyn, isn't it? And they have a bit of a mm-hmm. struggle. Yes, yeah, yeah. And Control is kind of on the loose at this point, and Control does help her, help her out of the room. Um, and this is where Ace and Control um, kind of get on a bit, and Ace is kind of helping Control change and become more more ladylike. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I wonder. This is probably what you thought I was getting at, but. Um, I, I do understand and appreciate the all the progressive stuff that that control goes through, um, but I don't know. I feel like the whole portrayal of of the this part of control where she's kind of in between this kind of undeveloped, more savage kind of thing, and then there's it's, there's that in between time where I find a bit a. Uh, a bit awkward, a bit, a bit unsure about the performance, really. All right. No, I, I thought you were going to talk about um, John Hillam's performance as Light, ah, okay. um, uh, which I, which I think is fantastic. I can, I see where you're coming from. Uh, I, th- it's one of those things where I think, uh, you know, a lot of actors would would struggle with this because it, I don't think it's a particularly easy performance. That that middle ground, as you say, I think in terms of how. How control is introduced into the story, and when we first see her properly, um, and all that point up to the, the cliffhanger in uh, episode two, I think is very strong. And then obviously when she's you know a proper lady like, that's fine. It's this middle ground which is very difficult, I think, to nail. Um, I see where you're coming from, but I think she manages to to do it quite well. I think the problem that I have with it, I think it's it's one of those. I think it's probably the one instance where the short running time of the story maybe hinders that development. It really does because it really it, it's it's with leaps and bounds. It's literally it, that that moment in the bedroom, and then when they go off to dinner, she's a completely mm-hmm. different person. So the yeah, which obviously we haven't got a problem with, but it's it's it just seems to be such a rapid progression. I feel like there's a. I don't know, it feels like there's a scene missing. I mean, there isn't, but I just feel like if we just had one more moment of little bit of progression to see, I think it would just smooth it out a bit. So, uh, I don't have a problem with it from the performance point of view. Uh, I think she manages to do it really rather well. I think it's maybe just the writing of it has just been 
maybe the time the time constraints makes it a bit less convincing. Yes. But for me, I think it's I think it's probably the, the the only weakness I could probably level of the story. I think it manages to just get away with it. It's 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 not too much of a problem, but yeah. Now you thought maybe I thought lights performance would be the bad point here, uh, mm -hmm. and I perhaps see where you come from. Um, he's got a very stark contrast between these kind of two. The way he puts emphasis on his feelings, like he's 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 very light, he's had very lightly spoken when he's kind of curious, or but when he's angry, his tone totally changes. Did you think um, maybe the way he talks was the, was the bad point of his performance, possibly, that I had in mind? No, no, I mean, really, I should apologise, Rob. It wasn't... Because, uh, I, I really, I thought, what, I thought what you were going to say was you had problems with his performance, uh, where obviously you don't, because I certainly don't. Because I'm aware of John Halem as, a, as an actor to some extent. I mean, he, he had an incredibly long career. I mean, I remember, he, I think he appeared in an episode of Lovejoy... He was in Bergerac at one point. I think he was in the BBC adaptation of Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, but uh, I was f uh, first of all aware of him as um, Sir Wilfred Death in the the final episode of the first series of Blackadder. Ah. Um, so, you know th that's sort of like what's locked in my head. And then he, you know he plays this performance, and it's not a it's not a safe performance. Um, I think that if you try to have another actor try and emulate that sort of performance you go oh my god what on earth are you doing no it's it's actually a really intelligent performance but um only a certain type of actor would be able to pull that off because he has this very um effete way of coming across but at the same time he doesn't appear weak so there's a and then he has this sort of sing song sing song like elevated voice for the most part but as you say when when he when he when he's angry or really threatening it comes you know it goes down into a almost a monotone but deep voice it's um it's a great performance um but i think uh, one of the great ones the yeah 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 one of the highlights yeah. uh, no i think i think my my whole issue with this story was just the whole like control no lady like i <laughs> just well, I mean, in all fair, I mean, in all fairness, uh, Ace does tell her to pack her whinging in, and she listens. She does. <laughs> but yes, I don't. Yeah, because yeah. actually, that that moment when she's creeping around the house, and you know, she comes across a bug and she eats it, and she's taking great delight in it. Mm. I quite like that performance. But yes, I do think that moment when control, no lady, lad. Yeah, that is a bit. Uh, <laughs> but you know, Ace is just going. Oh, stop! stop <laughs> pack the whinging in, control. Yeah. Uh, and then it's right okay right we've quickly moved on from that thank god yeah uh, <laughs> that might not yeah. have even been scripted <laughs> pack the winch <laughs> no. you saw the Argent Arts and I forgot to say get your acting in girl will you <laughs> <laughs> I've just got this idea of trying to work that line in, in with that exact delivery in an everyday conversation <laughs> but I think, <laughs> I think I think it would just freak people out <laughs> Or be very deeply concerned. Um, is it shortly after this that Gwendolyn comes in and attacks Ace? Yes. I like this because controls like, oh, I, I, I want to play. <laughs> and then Fen Cooper comes in and thinks, oh, the ladies are rested, restless tonight. <laughs> yeah, in fact, because uh, there's an earlier scene where 
Revers and uh, and Control are talking, and then uh, Control does a runner when the Doctor turns up. It just runs out and the I window. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah. And I just love his line and just the delivery of going. Of course, if she was a real lady, like I wouldn't be in her boudoir. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> she goes, yeah, it's a good point. Uh, but yes, uh, going back. So yeah. Um, so the, the Doctor and Cooper arrive and uh, save Ace from from Gwendolyn's attack, mm. and that's when the Doctor wakes Gwendolyn up from her, I don't know what it would be, shell shock, brainwash, um, and then it's that realization that uh, Mrs. Pritchard is Gwendolyn's mother, and then um, it swiftly moves on to the final uh, the final confrontation with Josiah and the Doctor and mm. they go to the dining room and you get the sense that the Doctor's always in control at this point um, he even walks in and he's like don't touch the soup and he's just letting this play out yeah he kind of feels like he's in control at this point um, of course we do find out that Josiah isn't isn't the biggest menace here because his ambition was a bit small um, compared to what, yeah. But as the doctor says, uh, he only wanted to take over an empire. At least he didn't want to destroy the uh, the world. Mm. Which, um, yeah. So light turns out to be, uh, I mean, I don't know what you would call him, a sort of um, an alien angel-like scientist who goes into a massive hissy fit because many, 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 many years ago, he visited Earth to catalogue all the life on the planet. Uh, but got rather frustrated uh, that evolution kept on changing everything. So now he's woken up in the Victorian era, freaked out that Earth has developed along these lines, in fact has developed uh, at all, and to stop all this and to stop any amendments to his catalogue, decides to destroy all life on Earth. Seems reasonable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and of course the Doctor points out the flaws in this, he starts naming all the, the mythological beings... <laughs> Yeah, which, uh, you know, he basically, his, he's quoting uh, Lewis Carroll's uh, Jabberwocky poem. I can't remember if that's in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass. I think it's Wonderland. Uh, the Mock Turtle tells the story, I think. But yes, uh, yeah, so he's talking about, you know, uh, the basilisks and all the rest of it, which is a, which is a good scene, just as a, just as a means to, to wind light up and, and to delay him, which is quite nice. I think light is... A little bit too smart for this because he does point out that the doctor's just a bit agitating. Uh, it's just a bit annoying. But um, yeah, the doctor does does manage to um, use his logic to defeat him, though. He, he's yeah, very I mean, persistent it, about the change thing. Yeah, well, he's basically pointing out the whole. You know, light doesn't have an argument here because um, change is a part of life. Um, to, den- to deny change is to deny life, and to d- deny life is, you know, is patently absurd. Um, and he emphasises this by, you know, you've changed too light, you've changed your appearance, uh, which has established that the appearance that we see him in this episode is, is different to perhaps how he's appeared previously. So he's changed his appearance, he's changed his mood, he's changed his mind. He's changed his location, you know. I mean, all the rest of you know the doctor's like really winding him up, and even lights going, "You're you're ceaseless, well, you never stop." And then the doctor goes, "I suppose I could. It would make a change." Uh, <laughs> this man, <laughs> just 
Ah, the doctor just being a complete wind-up merchant at this point, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh, we forgot to mention the inspector got turned to soup. Ah, uh, the cream of Scotland Yard. Yeah. Again, one of the, I mean, I mean, sort of stomach churning, but again, one of the best lines in the, uh, in, in the story. Yeah. It's, oh, it's darkly, sickingly comic. But uh, yes, uh, yeah, he gets turned into primordial soup. Yes. But it, it light turned him, didn't he? Um, mm-hmm. Was Josiah aware that the the inspector was on the table? No, no, I, I don't think he was. But I mean, he he was quick in with a quip, though, wasn't mm, he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Early on in dinner, um, is it Lady Pritchard, um, Gwendolyn's mm. mother, goes off to see her, and that's that scene where they kind of embrace, and then a light kind of intervenes and. Uh, says they'll never change and turns them to stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nimrod comes in and he's all like, well, they, what did they ever do to you? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. But that's the they, they never harmed you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I've just decided Earth's future. And then promptly vanishes at the speed of thought. And then... Uh, we find out that there's an invitation to Buckingham Palace. Mm-hmm. Um, which Fen Cooper and Josiah were going to attend, but uh, Fen Cooper extends the invitation to control, but uh, ultimately she just goes to burn it, and this is where Ace kind of breaks her silence and admits that's, that's what she did all those years ago. Mm-hmm. She burned the place down. Yeah, which even the doctor didn't knew. Uh, didn't no. didn't knew. Uh, <laughs> I've lost all capability of speech. Um, even the doctor didn't know that. Yeah, he's surprised by that. Uh, and of course, that's the the secret that he's been trying to find out from Ace. You know, he she almost tells him towards the end of the first episode. Uh, in episode two, he try. You know, he, he you know he. He asks her something, and she's, you know, he's about to, you know, he's about to be told to mind his own business. He goes, "All right, all right." Um, actually, funny enough, just before Ace has that uh, that attack that we were talking about before, and then remembers everything. Um, so, 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 so finally, that it's it's uh, it's announced, and the, and the Doctor knows, and um, yeah, that's uh, it's it's a nice little moment. Not nice in terms of, um, you know, because j- just nice in terms of how it's handled. In terms of the drama, I mean. And once uh, light has dealt with, it is dealt with, they all run to the basement, to the spaceship, because as the Doctor says, in some way there's going to be... Does he, does he say an explosion? A tremendous, tremendous explosion. One. Yeah, yeah and it, but uh, Josiah comes down and holds Ace at gunpoint. Mm-hmm. So something needs to be done here. But... Uh, yeah, just Josiah swiftly dealt with, and his, the heads blow off his husks. <laughs> yeah, and and then he he he, to the he sort of degenerates into what control used to be because if you notice his uh, his speech patterns completely change at this point. Mm. He's no longer eloquent. You know, he comments that things have changed, but he goes all oh, changed the way that sort of control spoke before, and even Ace goes they've swapped roles. Um, and I'm wondering if. The fact that even though uh, Josiah had evolved, 
that evolution was based on the previous changes. So the fact that Control has destroyed a link to that evolved past by blowing up the husk's head, that's caused him to... Ah, um, all that progression that he's made. Yeah, to degenerate into that state. Mm, interesting. And of course, uh, yes, um, Control picks up the picks up the book because she's the surveyor now. Mm-hmm. Um, she points out that she's uh, she won't catalog the, the doctor. Yeah, it's interesting how she phrases that. She says uh, something. Something tells me, Doctor, you will never. You're not in our catalog, nor will you ever be. So, wh- wh- what does that mean? But we do know uh, that her and the doctor have had a day together that we haven't seen, when Ace was asleep. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it could be anything. But is it the doctors beyond knowing? Mm. Um, did they have an awareness that he was someone special? And also, what did Josiah think of the doctor and the TARDIS? Because he obviously observed them. Um, he said to Gwendolyn to have visitors. Yeah. Um, he never questioned. Does he ever question who they are, where they're from? No, that's never questioned. And, and in fact, uh, Nimrod is is very you know sort of like immediately accepting of him. But then I suppose Josiah would have asked uh, asked him to uh, attend to dinner. Um, the Reverend would have thought he's just another guest when it's established because he 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 thinks he's Josiah at first, but then um, probably thinks he's just another guest. This kind of thing doesn't get addressed quite often in Doctor Who because. If everyone questioned who the Doctor was, that would take up more time every story. Um, yeah, well, it's what, it's the reason why uh, Russell T. Davis introduced the, the psychic paper when the show came back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's absent here, and if you think about it too hard, you may think, what to what extent did Josiah know? Mm. But, mm, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, Josiah wouldn't know anything, but I think it's one of those things, you could, he, he knew enough. So the ship leaves at the speed of thought and um, then we get this great scene in the main hallway with the Doctor and Ace um, and he asks if she has any any regrets and uh, <laughs> yeah she wishes, she wishes she'd blown it up. Yeah and I guess again that's um, you know the, the Doctor using Ace's own vernacular uh, which is a change for him as well. Uh, uh, I'm not entirely sure if this is correct, but I'm sure I picked up somewhere that that was Sylvester McCoy's idea for for ending the story that way. Um, but either way, um, I think it's a I think it's a good ending. Yeah. So listeners' responses this week, and um, we asked what people thought about this story. Marios on Twitter said, "Just love this, and diving back into Ace's past is immense." I think that Andrew Cartmel, as editor, did a brilliant job on this season. Sophie Aldred played Ace tremendously. Yeah, no, dis- no disagreement from me, I think, yeah. John Lane said, I love it. The atmosphere in itself is incredible, but it's also got a cool story and interesting themes. Ace and the Tux, and that's the way to the zoo. <laughs> yeah, I do like that song. Christopher said, maybe if the story hadn't been severely edited down for time, it would have been better. 
But as it is, it just feels like a total hot mess that no amount of goodwill towards it being the final recorded classic Who episode will ever be able to overcome. Okay, it's a, a different take on that. Um, it's interesting. Uh, obviously, I think it's safe to say that that's something that we don't agree with. But um, Because that's one of the things, because even people who, who really like the story have always said that uh, perhaps it would have benefited an extra episode. Um, but going back to what uh, uh, the previous person had said, um, actually, Andrew Cartman, I think, edited, it, edited the story really rather well. I don't think it's a hot mess, but uh, I mean, it's it's good that you know to hear someone else's different opinion. But um, it, it's a very rich story. There's an awful lot in there. But this idea that um, this because Ghostlight has this reputation for being impenetrable and uh, not making any sense at all. I I disagree with that. There's all, I think it's one of those stories where you can pick up a little bit of the story with repeated viewing. But generally speaking, I think it's the, the the main bulk of the story, which I think is a good one, and is told imag- imaginatively, is that it's a story about change, and um, and a and a, a villain that's trying to stop it. Is essentially what the story is at its most basic, um, but it's told with imagination and uh, and wit, and. I think, yeah, you're able to pick up certain themes or certain little... Because uh, it's jam-packed with everything. So, for example, um, how, how we were talking earlier, you know, how, how we said that, you know, um, taking someone to Java is the story's metaphor for bumping someone off, um, which works within the confines of the story, and you totally get it, and it's really interesting. But again, even that's something which ties into the theme of change and evolution, because because this story is set in 1883 I think it was in 1891 so a little bit in the future but you've got this thing called Java Man um, which was a, uh, which was the discovery of skeletal remains uh, establishing uh, you know uh, as part of that, that process of human, human evolution and a step closer to finding the missing link um, and that was on the island of Java so even as something as something as that ties in and is just um Anyway, basically, there's, the basic story is easy to understand, but the way in which it's told, there's a, there's a lot to take in, which you which you get on on repeated viewing. When um, was um, Darwin's theory of evolution widely accepted, if not in the Victorian era, if, if, if in this era, era, if it's um... that's a good question in terms mm. of when it was fully accepted. Mm. Um, well. Th- you could actually argue it was a, it was an ongoing process because this idea that humans were animal, you know, but that we're animals, yeah. Only, I think I'm right in saying this, only emerged in the 1960s. Right. Okay. Um, and and we had oh, what was her name? Professor Clack, I think. Um, she she, she uh, briefly worked at Newcastle University for a time, and I think uh, was also down in Oxford or possibly Cambridge. I, I've, Anyway, she's, um, she's absolutely fascinating. And then her work, I think it was in the 1970s, she proved um, uh, an establishing link between how life evolved from, from the oceans onto land. Um, you know, and that's during our parents' lifetime. Um, it, um, 
so it's it's been an ongoing process really yeah i guess there's also all sorts of factors like um people's lack of comprehension and uh, also religion i guess is probably a big factor in um mm. um people's acceptance of um different things like that. yeah <laughs> i think that's a whole <laughs> other discussion <laughs> <laughs> yeah um sorry it was um uh professor uh jennifer clack I was trying to think of the term paleontologist. That was it. Ah, okay. And uh, it was the fish to a trep- uh, tetrapod transition. She was, uh, you know, she made a significant discovery with that. It was actually to do with uh, a specific bone uh, that was in in one form of species that ha- that wasn't in another. Uh, I remember watching a documentary on her uh, many years ago. It was really really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, she sadly passed away last year, uh, March 2020. It's quite interesting to think that people would um, find it difficult to draw a comparison between man and animal. <laughs> when anatomically, um, especially vertebrae and mammals, <laughs> you know, same kind of thing. So do we have a score for the episode this week, Liam? Uh, yes, um, I'm a big fan of the story. In fact, uh, I've always been uh, mesmerised by it because I think I must have got it round about when it was first released on VHS. And I remember being on a, a trip to Hexham with my grandparents. Um, and whilst there, popping into Woolworths, and that's when they had Ghostlight. And uh, my grandmother bought me Ghostlight. Um, and everything about the story, just I mean, from, from the the VHS cover, because it was it was, seemed to be dark and mysterious. And then, um, and then watching it, it was like no other Doctor Who story I've seen before or since. It's it's totally unique. Uh, I really like the story. I really like the imagination. I love how it's told in terms of the the acting, uh, the production values. I think the set designs are absolutely amazing. The costumes, etc., etc. Um, and I think it's it's a lot more. I mean, it's. There's something really... But I mean, one thing that we haven't really talked about is really the, the atmosphere that permeates the whole story. There's something sort of like genuinely horrific and quite sickening about some of the themes and the way that they're revealed. Yeah. And as I said, when it's revealed in episode three of how much of a nasty piece of work Josiah has actually been, and yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a, a story that I, I really, really like. I think I give it 10 out of 10. Right, wow. 10 out of 10. Okay, yeah. um... I feel on the same lines. Um, I'm just thinking about grotesque moments we were talking about earlier. And we forgot yeah. to mention the bit where Light is um, disassembling one of the mates. Holds yeah, and arm. there's something darkly <laughs> comic about that. You know, he turns around to Nimrod who's walked through and he's just got this dis- just uh, this up- severed arm. Just going, I didn't know how it worked, so I dismantled it. Um, oh, yeah, it's, 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 ch- <laughs> it's chilling. Um, yeah. Yeah. Between that and the Inspector, Cream of Scotland Yard, and yeah, yeah. Um, Reverend, not Bernard Matthews, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ernest Matthews, Ernest yeah. Matthews. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I, um, I actually did decide on 10 out of 10. The only thing I didn't, didn't like about this episode in particular was the. Uh, a little, little bit of control, it. but... 
So would you like to reveal what we're talking about next week? Uh, yes, so next week uh, we'll be discussing uh, my favourite Sylvester McCoy story. And um, I haven't. I feel like it should be called Defending the Indefensible because, uh, I mean, I gen- obviously I generally think it's a cracking good story, but uh, it, it's not highly regarded, unfortunately. So hopefully, uh, listening, if you don't like uh, the story that I picked, hopefully I will uh, convince you to at least reconsider it. It's from uh, the previous season, season 25, and it's The Happiness Patrol. Brilliant. Um, where does this sit in in the season? Yes, it might be. Does it, does it go Remembrance of the Daleks, Happiness Patrol, Silver Nemesis, then The Greatest Show in the Galaxy? Or have I got, yes, I think that's the order. Yeah, I think it's the second story yeah. in the series. That's cool. Oh, well, I look forward to that. I think I'll watch uh, part one in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully we'll get some responses in for that. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. Um, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. If you're listening on YouTube, smash that like button, subscribe. <laughs> um, if you're listening on SoundCloud, Spotify, please follow. Um, and any other shout-outs, Liam, that I'm missing? Uh, no, I think no. <laughs> great oh well thank you very much everyone for listening and we'll see you next monday yep thanks rob thanks everyone take care cheers goodbye the tide is close to bell imminent disaster the cloister bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no.